We are going to be continuing our series that we started last week, The Parables of the Kingdom. But let me start first with this question. Who has seen the movie Princess Bride? Anybody? Any Princess Bride fans? Yeah, right. Okay. So one of my favorite childhood movies, um, so many memorable lines, so many memorable scenes, right? Who can forget Andre the Giant just generally in that because he's gigantic? Um, but in the movie, there's a character named Vassini, Vassini, and he's like the mastermind of this like criminal little group that um, it really didn't seem very mastermindy, but he is pretty committed. He's leading the group. He's going, comes with the plans, and he certainly considers a genius, right? But over and over again, things happen that he doesn't plan, that he doesn't expect. And what does he say every time it happens? Inconceivable. Thank you. Thank you. Everyone else was thinking it, but it, you shouted it out. Inconceivable. Over and over again, he's like, inconceivable. The problem is, is that all the things that happen really aren't inconceivable. It's like, it's things that definitely could have happened. And, but he says it over and over again until it seems like the word almost loses meaning. And, um, Inigo Montoya, uh, who, you know, was many of our favorites from that movie, um, he's one of the henchmen uh, that turns good guy um, or later on in the show, and he says this thing to Vassini, he says, you keep saying this word, I don't think it means what you think it means. You know, and how often do we find ourselves, right, like, um, my wife Erin is an incredibly intelligent woman, and she has an amazing vocabulary, um, which means when I use words that I think I know what they mean, and it's not quite what it means, she's very kind, and if you know Erin, she, she doesn't say things unkind, and she's not being mean. She's really trying to be helpful. She's like, I don't think, that's not, I don't think that's the word you want, actually. Um, and that's, and again, it's like, it's her love, you know, she's great with words, uh, vocabulary, and so, but reminds me, like, that's not actually, you know, that word you use, I was thinking this week, um, the two different words, like, ideal, like, I-D-E-A-L, and idyllic, I-D-Y-L-L-I-C, I, like, always mix those up, like, idyllic, idyllic, they don't mean exactly, anyways, but there's these words that we use, regularly or phrases that we think we know what they mean and yet we don't but we use them so many times it's kind of like well this is what it means and we've started this series last week called the parables of the kingdom right and we talked about how the, one of the major messages that Jesus preached was about the kingdom of God the kingdom of God and, and the kingdom of God is one of those phrases that for a lot of us if you've been around church we when we hear that phrase we feel something in the gap Right? We, we feel something in the gap. Maybe we, we think like it's Christianity or it's the church or it's heaven or it's um, whatever you want to fill in the gap. When, when you hear the phrase kingdom of God, we have something that we attach to it. Right? But the challenging part for most of us um, is that we kind of struggle. If we were like pinpointing, like you tell me what the kingdom of God is, it's like, I mean, I don't know exactly, but if I heard it in a sentence, I could like kind of figure out what it means. And yet in the life of Jesus... It's a central part. It's a central message that he preached. And so in this series, we're going to spend time looking at what is the kingdom of God through these stories that Jesus told. Because the reason uh, that we look at the phrase, the kingdom of God, in fact, I'm going to do two things. One, I'm going to go over what is the kingdom of God kind of in an overview. Again, I did it last week, and you're like, why are you doing it again? One, because I think we need to hear it again, uh, because it's a phrase that we so often misunderstand, and then we're going to dive into one of those stories about the kingdom. Because, see, what's important to know is that Jesus taught really clearly about what the kingdom of God was like. And, and when he came, the people that he preached to, the people that he spoke to about the kingdom of God, they had ideas about what it meant as well, too. And the kingdom of God was this idea of where God ruled, 
where he was exerting his control, where God was in charge, where God was ruling as king, that's where the kingdom of God was. And it talked about Jesus coming, and he said the kingdom of God had come near, and this idea that, that God's kingdom, when it comes, he's the only one in control. He's the only one in charge. His word is final. And for faithful Jews of that day, and Jesus was Jewish, they prayed and they longed for the kingdom of God to come into their nation and into the world. That his kingdom would come. And we see that in Jesus, when he began his ministry on earth, in his teaching, miracles, his preaching and demonstrating the kingdom of God, that he preached that the kingdom had come near, that it had come near in him. In Matthew 4, 17, one of the first messages Jesus taught was this. One of the first things he says, repent for the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven had come near. By the way, kingdom of heaven equals kingdom of God. So if I use those phrases interchangeably, same thing. And he continued to preach that, that the kingdom of God had come near in Jesus himself. But what does that mean? Because for me, if I think about, if you think about just generally, take it out of like scripture context, said a kingdom had come near. You know, for me, the first image would be like a large army had come invading another, you know, like so there's a large army coming, right? There's force coming. The kingdom had come. But Jesus, in some ways, is saying the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God had come in him, in one person, which doesn't seem to make sense at first. You'd think it'd be a large group of people. Because if, if the kingdom of God is where God is ruling, where God is king, then you would think it would come with power. It would come with a large army invading but if Jesus, in Jesus, the kingdom had come near, then in some way that in Jesus, God's ruling and power and authority, God's reign had come close. But it didn't come like people expected. It didn't come like people imagined it would. In Matthew 4, 23, 24, we see what does it look like for the kingdom to come and break in in the life of Jesus. And it says this, Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases. Those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. I'm going to turn this fan off so my shirt doesn't continue to wave in the wind. But we see in this picture, when the kingdom comes... That it doesn't just come in one way. It comes through Jesus' teaching, and he teaches about it, but he also demonstrates the kingdom as well, too. That he proclaims it, and he demonstrates it. And so we see it in bodies being healed, sicknesses being cured, chronic pain being gone, demon-possessed and spiritually people set free, people with epilepsy cured, those who are paralyzed have their movement restored. We see a kingdom that comes with real power, with real authority when it says that Jesus him, the kingdom of God comes, we see real power and real authority. It had the real power to impact and change the lives of those who came in contact with it. Jesus was showing that in the kingdom of God, it had ultimate power. So over and over again, he defeats evil, uh, he defeats the devil, he defeats evil forces, he defeats things that are broken in the world, he defeats those things over and over again. And we'll talk more about in other weeks of the parables that we don't see the kingdom of God fully come in this lifetime. We see it's now and not yet that we see some of the kingdom breaking in in power. And yet one day when Jesus returns and comes as king over all and everyone sees it, that's when the kingdom breaks in in full force. But now we see the kingdom breaking in with real power and real authority. But here's another part of the kingdom of God that we see pictured 
In Matthew 10, verse 1 and 5 and 8, it says this. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or either enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. So Jesus, he comes as the embodiment of the kingdom of God, the power, the rule of God, and yet it's not a one-man show. He's like, pretty early on, he's like, okay, I'm going to give that authority and power to, to others. Anyone else who is in the kingdom, under God's rule and reign, I want to give that authority to you to go out and change the world. I'm going to go out and give you that authority and power to make an impact and difference in the world, which we talk about a value like that in our church. Everyone gets to play. Everyone gets to be involved. Everyone gets to be a part of this kingdom that Jesus gives away his authority and power. Another amazing thing about God's kingdom, that he actually gives away authority and power. He doesn't all hold it for himself, but he says, actually, I want you to do the things I'm doing. He does it for the people who have stepped into the kingdom of God under his reign and his rule. That the kingdom of God had broken in and broken in near. So the kingdom of God is a kingdom of power, but it's more too. We talked about last week how the Sermon on the Mount, it shows this picture of what are the values of the kingdom? What is the lifestyle of following the kingdom? And so he talks about blessed in the kingdom are those who are literally poor and those who are poor in spirit. He talks about it's the humble and gentle in the kingdom of God. It's, it's those who show mercy, those who, sh- who pursue peace, those who experience persecution, those who hunger for their lives to be centered around God's will. This is the ethics and the values of the kingdom. And this is what marked Jesus' ministry when he taught and also demonstrated what the kingdom of God was like. And this is what God himself is like. When we talk about the kingdom of God is like, sometimes we can think, well, that just means Christianity. And so we think Christianity, a religion, a philosophy is like this. But friends, at the center of the kingdom of God is God who is king. And Jesus, who is fully God, shows us that. So it's more than just, here's a religion or a philosophy or some abstract rule, and that's what it's like. But this is what God is like. This is what God values. This is what God loves. This is what God is about doing. And it's in this context where we hear Jesus teach about what the kingdom of God is like in parables. He tells stories about what the kingdom of God is like because it was so different than what people expected. It was so different than what they imagined it would look like. Because their definition, their understanding of kingdom of God, like some of us and some of my word choices that I'm not like, that's not really what it means. Just like that, people had an understanding of the kingdom of God that didn't line up with what Jesus demonstrates. So he tells stories about the kingdom of God so that we can better understand it. So let me pray, and then we're going to dive into our scripture for today. Well, Lord, in this beautiful summer day, breeze blowing and sun shining, God, reminded of your goodness. We're reminded that you are so creative that the beauty of your creation is amazing. More than any work of art, more than anything we could create, God, just the simple nature that we see and experience. Sometimes we experience goodness in the warm relationships we have with family and friends and 
spouses and children and parents experience the beauty and goodness of your creation, God, in so many different ways. So today, as we stop and make space, maybe for some of us this morning, we've come uh, expecting and hoping to meet with you. For others of us, we're not really sure why we're here. But God, for each one of us, would we see you clearly? Would you remove the things that get in the way of us seeing who you are, seeing your kingdom clearly, God? Open our eyes to see you. Holy Spirit, come. Have your way. Amen. Amen. So today we're looking at just three verses, uh, and it's in Matthew 13, 44 to 46. So if you have a Bible, you can open it up. If you have a phone app, you can open that up, or you can follow along on the screen. But here's our verses for today. Jesus says this, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. You know, in the culture we live in and really kind of throughout history and throughout society, what we see over and over again is that most people, most people believe in God, most people or in some way believe there's more than what we see. I think the most recent survey is 80% of, of Americans believe there's a God, there's some kind of higher power. I think that number would probably go higher if we said, is there something else outside of us? But most people, and you see there's a hunger as well too. You know, know what, it's in Lakewood and Cleveland, but greater wise as well too. There's a hunger to be in touch with a spiritual reality, something bigger, something more than what we can see, something more than what we can taste and touch and feel. There's something greater. And for many of us, and for most of us in this room, and many of our neighbors as well too, they might use the language of seeking after God, but a greater spiritual reality. And the story we read in the parable is really about, it's a really a metaphor, it's a picture of spiritual seeking. It's really a picture of, even though we see the, the farmer and the treasure and the, and the pearl merchant and the pearl of greatest price, really what it's a picture of what Jesus is trying to do is to show us how to experience spirituality, how to experience the kingdom of God, the reality of it, how to enter into God's kingdom in a way that's rich and deep and full and transformative. That's not just a surface level religion and ritual. Jesus is showing in this parable how do we actually enter into God's kingdom in a way that's significant, that shapes and forms us. So it's not just, this parable doesn't show what the kingdom of God is like, but how we engage, how we enter into it to experience him fully. So let's walk through these two little stories. And really, there's a lot of similarities between both stories. They're told back to back. They're only three verses because they're meant to be parallel. They're most, meant to reinforce one another, the, the central meaning. Though there are differences, and we'll pull some of those out because I think there's some nuance that really helps us understand how do we experience and enter into God's kingdom. But the first thing that we see in these stories is that the kingdom of God, Jesus compares to something of the greatest worth, greatest value. It's in the two verses. It said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure, in verse 44. And the kingdom of heaven is like a pearl of great value in verse 46. In other words, the experience of, the invitation into, the life in, the impact of the kingdom of God is worth more than anything else. It's the greatest value you could find. Knowing God himself is greater than anything else. Jesus starts out with, it's the greatest thing you could find. It's incredible worth. In other words, the kingdom of God greater than 
everything. The kingdom of God is greater than everything. And the thing about the kingdom of God, God's rule in our lives, it's not just a good thing. It's not just a thing that will help our lives be better. It's not just a thing that we can add on and go, yeah, I want to enter into the kingdom of God. Also, I have a lot of other things that are important that are driving me too. But it's a really good accent. It's a really good add-on. It's a really good addition. The thing about the the kingdom of God and the rule in his life is that something so significant, it's life-altering. It's life-changing. Everything shifts. But even so, even with the power and the beauty of God's kingdom, in the rule of God, this parable shows us that the kingdom of God, it's actually not obvious. There's a level where it has to be found. There's a hiddenness to it. It wasn't just laying around for everyone to see and everyone's like, oh, here it is. Even though Jesus was teaching and preaching and demonstrating, there was still a hiddenness and not an obviousness to it. In verse 44, it says, like a treasure hidden in a field. Or when he found one of great value, this parable shows us that there's a, there's a finding of the kingdom of God. In other words, God's kingdom isn't always obvious. And for those of you who heard this story and you go, okay, you know, for some of us, I grew up in church and so I would skip over like, yeah, yeah, the treasure's hidden in a field. But if you stop and go, that, why? Why is there treasure hidden in a field? I mean, like, you know, we know pirate stories and maybe so that's it, you know, the X marks the spot. But actually it makes sense in that day because uh, in Palestine, Israel, um, often they'd be invaded and conquering, other conquering armies would come. And so there is no bank, there is no, uh, you know, uh, cryptocurrency. Sorry for those of you invest in crypto, not doing so hot. Um, but uh, there's not a place to put your money. There's not a place to put your finances. So what you do is you would bury it. You would find places to hide it that, so that someone couldn't find So when the invading army would come, um, they couldn't find that. And so what probably happened is that uh, in the parable of the, uh, of the, the, the treasure in the, in the ground is that um, that field had probably been bought by a new owner. The previous owner, either they died or they forgot they had treasure buried there. We don't really know. But probably a new owner had bought it, and someone's working that ground. Someone's working the ground. They're tilling the ground, and all of a sudden, the plow hits in the ground. Clink. Oh, there's, there's something here. And digs it out, finds it. And here's this treasure that he wasn't looking for. So he goes and he, and he buys the plot of land. He goes and, and, it, and it might sound a little bit shady, um, but really in the laws of that day, it was kind of finders keepers. Um, you know, and so it was following the law of the day. You know, but he goes and buys the land. The owner doesn't know there's this incredible value in the land and buys it. Here's the thing about this man. He wasn't even looking for the treasure. He wasn't looking for it. He wasn't like on a treasure hunt. It was just in his ordinary, everyday life, work in the field, and boom, runs into this thing, this treasure. Now, the pearl merchant is a bit different, right? Because the pearl merchant, his whole life had actually been shaped around looking for pearls, hence the trader of pearls. And so he's actually actively seeking. But he's seeking, but he's a bit surprised. He's surprised because he thought he would find pearls like he always found. And yet he came across something of so great a worth that he gave everything else up. And I think we see two things about the kingdom of God here and how they find it. First is that we often find the kingdom of God in the ordinary, whether it's by surprise, whether it's just in our daily job, in the way we live our life. And the other thing is there's different ways that people find and experience God's kingdom. And so here's the thing. We find the kingdom of God in the ordinary. Sometimes it's in ordinary circumstances. Ordinary circumstances, because honestly, what we see is that if they would have just kept surface level, 
If you just kept digging, not dig, dug that little bit deeper down, right? If they would have been looking for pearls and not looking that closely, but they had to look a little deeper. They had to dig a little deeper in because it wasn't obvious. It was ordinary circumstances. And I think sometimes, for some of us, what happens is we're looking for spiritual reality. We're looking for where God is. If we consider ourselves a Christian, maybe we're saying, God, where are you? And we miss him because we think God is going to show up in the big, that we think God is going to show up in the breakthroughs all the time, that he's always going to show up in the grand things where we can't possibly miss him. Now, if you've been around this church very long, you know every opportunity we have to ask God to do something huge, we ask it. Like, we are not like going, well, God doesn't always do the big. He generally does the ordinary, so we're not even going to ask for it. If there's someone sick, we're going to ask God to heal that person right now. If someone is struggling with uh, depression, anxiety, we're going to ask God to free them right now. If, someone, if there's a marriage that's struggling, we're going to say, God, would you break through and would you bring restoration and reconciliation right now? We're always going to ask it. But we often see God move in the ordinary, in the regular, in the everyday, and oftentimes we miss it. We miss it because we think, if this is God working in my life, it's going to be clear. If it's God moving, then it's going to be obvious. But oftentimes, God doesn't move in the obvious. We have to dig a little bit deeper to see it. The merchant, if he wasn't looking deeply at all the pearls, he wouldn't have found the one of great value. The man in the field, if he wasn't actually tilling up the ground, if he wasn't actually looking close enough, he wouldn't have been able to find what was buried underneath the surface. He would have missed it if he was just looking for God in the extraordinary. But there's an ordinariness. And encourage you and encourage me that God wants to meet us in the ordinary. I don't know about you, but we have two little kids at home, and I have this grandeur of waking up early every morning with my coffee and like, God, I just want to meet with you. And, and so I'll try to wake up at 5. Sometimes I don't wake up till 6.30. Sometimes I do wake up early, and then my kids wake up at the same time. It's like, this is not the ideal that I thought of. This is not the extraordinary experiences. You know, it's like I'm listening to like a devotional app as I drive to the office, whatever it is. But just to be encouraged that God wants to meet us in the ordinary. God wants to meet us in the everyday. That doesn't mean that when we experience the kingdom of God, there's not so extraordinary things that happen in us. But oftentimes it has an ordinary shell. It has an ordinary appearance. We miss what God is doing. The other way, oftentimes we miss the kingdom of God, is that God moves through ordinary people. Ordinary people. Right? Sometimes the person that God wants to use in our life doesn't fit the mold of who we would choose. Like, if God's really moving in their life, if God's really captivated them, then they wouldn't, like, this is not the person I would choose. Like, I would, you know, if, if, if God's going to move, if God's going to speak, or if, if this, is, this is not the kind of person I want to go, you know, this is what a follower of Jesus looks like. I don't mean because their life doesn't line up with God's values. I just mean they're kind of normal. Maybe they're not great at small talk. You interact with them, and you're like, I don't mean, they're fine. You know, where we come to church, maybe this is your first time here, you've been coming for a while, and you're like, I don't know. I mean, the people are fine, you know, and that's, that's okay. You can go to a place where you connect. But I think sometimes we look and we go, like, if God's moving in someone's life, it has to look extraordinary. It has to look crazy. It has to be, like, all these amazing stories of what God is doing in them and through them. And yet sometimes, oftentimes, God uses ordinary people to communicate, to see God's kingdom fully. And I think so that's just an important thing. Sometimes we miss it. We miss what God wants to do through ordinary people. Or we look at ourselves and go, I'm just ordinary. So maybe God's not moving in my life. Maybe I don't, because I don't have these crazy experiences that God's not really working in me, that I don't really know him or I'm missing it or I'm not quite at that level yet. 
We miss what God is doing, the kingdom of God breaking in, because we expect it to be extraordinary or out there at another level, and sometimes it's just in the everyday. But the other ordinary that oftentimes we get stuck on is the ordinary message. Most of us, most of us, not all of us, most of us, we grew up hearing something about Jesus. Right? We grew up maybe in church, maybe our grandparents brought us to church, maybe we went to a vacation Bible school in the summer, maybe we went to school when we were old, you know, when we were still little, just enough to go through confirmation or something, then we stopped going. Whatever it is, we've heard the message about Jesus. And so when we hear Jesus or God loves you or God has purpose for you, significance, it's like, yeah, yeah, that's great. That's good. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. That's helpful. You know, but really we're like, yeah, that's good. I've kind of moved on from there though, right? Like, I, what else? You know, that's, that's fine. And it can become an ordinary message to us. And really when that happens, I would say, I know for myself, and I would say it's true probably for you as well, what we've done is we haven't actually slowed down enough and taken time to actually look at the life of Jesus. We haven't actually spent the time to reflect on the message of God's kingdom, what God's kingdom looks like, what it looks like when it breaks into a life, when God's love and grace and kindness and forgiveness and healing can what you can actually do in your life and in your neighborhood and in your community we haven't taken enough time slowed down enough to actually take a look and see and we miss it it looks too ordinary and we skip by it so there's the ordinariness that we miss the kingdom of god but the other thing is that we see in this story in this parable is that there are different ways that people find and experience god's kingdom some of your stories, if you consider yourself a Christian, or even if you think about how you ended up here today, you might have been like the first person who wasn't looking for it. You weren't looking for it. Maybe you walked by the church on a Sunday and saw a sign, right? Or maybe someone invited you to church years ago, and you're like, I guess because they're my friend, and I feel socially awkward saying no. You know, whatever it is, you weren't looking for something. You weren't looking for God. You didn't have a felt need in your life. And yet, when you heard about God's love, when you heard about Jesus, when you heard about the kingdom of God, when you experienced something and all of a sudden something's flipped, and you're like, oh my goodness, I didn't know I needed this. I didn't know God, like this. I, I had no idea. I wasn't even looking for it. Or maybe you're more like the pearl merchant where you know there's a need, you know there's a hunger, you know there's a longing in your heart. And you're actively seeking. And, and when you came to know Jesus, when you came to hear about Jesus and the gospel and the good news of the kingdom, you were so captivated. You're like, this is what I've been looking for. This, maybe that's your story. But there's different ways that we come across and we find God's kingdom. But whatever way, whatever way that you came across God's kingdom, whatever way that you're here today, it's lots of different ways. But God wants to meet us. But here's the thing, no matter what way we come across God's kingdom, it requires our response. It requires our response. It says this in verses 44 and 46, their responses. To the man who found in the field, it says, and in his joy went and sold all he had. In verse 46, he went away and sold everything he had. They literally liquidated all that they had. Everything they had owned, they got rid of, they sold because at a heart level, everything they valued had changed. Because they had accumulated the person who was in the field, they had, all the things that they thought were of worth, they thought were of significance, thought were of value, when it came across this treasure, said it's not worth it. All that stuff isn't worth it. And the pearl merchant, all the things that he had accumulated, pearls and otherwise, said all that stuff, all the ways that I'm investing, all my assets, I'm liquidating in order to have this. 
And when we really find the treasure that is God's love, God's heart, God's kingdom, the gospel, when we find the true treasure that's God's kingdom, when we step into it and experience it, when we surrender our heart to him, when we surrender our will, we surrender our lives, we find that it transforms what we value. It transforms what we love. It transforms what we most deeply care about. If you've ever met somebody who walks the talk of being a Christian, and it's not just that like they do the external, but you also know like, man, they're really loving and really kind as well too, but also they give up their time and their resources and their efforts, and you just know, man, this person embodies what it looks like to follow Jesus. Here's how it didn't happen. It didn't happen by them going, you know, I want to be moral. I want to be real. I'm going to do the right things for God. And if I do that, then maybe I'll get the things that all the things I want in life too. So it's like I have all these things that I desire in my life. I want to have success. I want to have health. I want to have prosperity. I want to have whatever. I want to get married. I want to, whatever it is. And then we come to God and say, God, I'm going to follow you. And if I follow you, then I'm going to get all the things that I want too. Right? That's not how usually it works. When you see someone who's really living out following Jesus, what's happened is that there's been an exchange. There's been an exchange of saying, what I actually most value, I've got a glimpse of what God's kingdom is like. His love for me, his grace, his acceptance, the purpose and significance has so captured me that all those other things, they just don't have the value they used to. They just don't have the worth that they used to. Where we find ourselves often getting bitter and resentful, or maybe being a part of a church community or a follower of Jesus feels like a burden, is oftentimes when we bring all the things that we value and that we think are most important, you know, that line up with the world, that line up with all the things before we knew Jesus, we bring those things and we still most deeply love those things, and then we add on God. And we try to do all the God stuff, so we pray and read our Bible and serve, but our ultimate heart, our ultimate desire is all the other things, and we're like, when God doesn't give us all the other things, then we say, God, but I'm doing all this for you, why don't you give me this? None of us have ever been there, right? I've never been there, of course. But we do all this stuff, God, this is for you, and so now you can do something for me. And we completely miss the point. In this parable, that's not what happens. It's not like, I, you know, I'm going to do this, but you can do this for me. You know, if we think about it this way, if you had a terminal illness and you knew there was a cure, a cure for terminal illness, and, and you had to sell all of your Apple products to get this cure, or maybe you're an Android user, whatever it is, you had to sell all of those to find this cure, it would be like, yeah, okay, done, I'm in, I'm all in, right? Because there's like this reality that like having my life means more than having the newest iPhone. You're like, that's quite a silly analogy. Yeah, it is. But what's happened is, is that the person, it wasn't even a, a, a transactional amount. It could have been sell your house for this cure. It could have been sell your cars. It could have been whatever. But the reality of is that all this stuff, it doesn't matter if the price tag is higher than what I would say, medicine shouldn't cost that much. And we're not talking about healthcare. We can have another conversation about that. But talking about the value of a life is worth more than the houses and the cars and all of those things. It's worth it. We don't think about, uh, what's the dollar-to-dollar -dollar exchange? Am I getting a good deal? It's like, I just want to live. I just want to be alive. 
And if it means I don't have a phone or a car or a house or whatever, I'm going to give it up because this is worth so much more. That's what's happening in this parable. It's like they're not doing like the transaction currency. What's the calculation? Is it worth selling? It's like this treasure is worth so much. Everything else is sold. Everything else is gone because at a heart level, there's been a shift of what they value. And for us, when we struggle to say, God, my life is yours. Not just at like a, so that means I'll come to church at 8 o'clock and serve. But at a heart level, we say, God, what I love is you. What I want more than anything is to know you, to be a part of your kingdom, to love others, to show others that kind of love, to give my life because you've given your life for me. When at a heart level it happens, then it doesn't feel like a burden to give everything else up. It doesn't feel like a burden all the time when we sacrifice and surrender. It doesn't mean it's never hard. Don't hear that. It's like, well, once you get your heart right, everything given up is easy. Like, that's not what I'm saying. But there's a shift when it comes, when what we love changes. What we love the most changes. Suddenly we can give up other things because there's just not that worth that we put on it otherwise. How do you find out what you love the most? We talked about this before um, in, on Sundays. But here's two easy ways to find out what do you love the most. And there's the solitude test and the fear test. Solitude, when you're by yourself and no one is forcing you, where does your mind just naturally go? What do you most naturally daydream about or worry about? What's that thing that you most likely go to? You know, is it your job? Is it your family? Is it your health? Is it your, your books? I mean, your books. I was going to say book community. Is it your finances? What is it? Is it your relationships? Where does your mind most naturally go? Because that shows you what you love the most. When no one's forcing you to think about something, where does your mind go? Because that's where your heart is, right? Or the fear test. What's the thing that you're like, if I lost this, life wouldn't feel like living? Life wouldn't feel like if I lost this thing or lost this relationship or lost, my life wouldn't be worth living. Whatever those things are, that thing is, it shows what we love the most, Right? And for those of us maybe who are married, we'd say our spouse. Or if we have children, we'd say our children. Or something like that. You're like, those are great things. And they are. Usually the things that we love, that we put at the center, that we value most, usually they're not bad things. They're really good things. They just can't stand the weight of banking your whole life on them. Because we're just not guaranteed they're going to be there. We're just not guaranteed that it's always going to last. We're just not guaranteed because none of it will last forever. And the question of what are we willing to give up in order to have the kingdom of God, not that we earn God's love or God's grace, that's not it. But what are we saying, man, that is not worth compared to what God you offer. What is that thing that we love the most? And this is a challenging, this is challenging to me to get up here and preach this as well too. Because I have to ask the question of what is it that I love the most? What's the thing that I, my heart most naturally goes to in daydreaming or in a fear, in worry? And so it shows us what's actually most loved. And when we get there, when our hearts are changed and our hearts begin to look differently, we begin to value and love the things that God loves and values. Following him serving him, spending time in quietness, hearing about his love for us, hearing his acceptance of us, approval of us, his welcome of us. It becomes life 
And we go, man, why in the world would I have ever thought that I should hold on to those other things? That I should bank my whole life on those other things when, God, the life that you offer is so much more. So much more. And here's what we see in verse 44. It says this. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. In his joy. This is what Jesus wants us to experience. When we say yes to him, when we surrender our life to the one who gave his life for us, to step into his kingdom, he wants us to so see the value, to so see the value of his kingdom, to so see the value of him in our lives and in the world and in our relationships, that it's in joy, that it's in joy we surrender those other things. And oftentimes, friends, here's reality. Like, surrendering things to God, it usually doesn't mean that we give them up. It usually means that we love them less or we love God more. I grew up in a, uh, the way that I grew up very much when I heard the language of surrender, it was like, what is it that I love that I have to give up? You know, I hear stories all the time of like, um, you know, well, I, I love basketball so much, and, but God called me to give it up, so I stopped playing basketball, even though I was going to get a college scholarship. And it was like, yes, come on, that's it, give it up. You know, or, and this is not, there's no criticism, but recently there was an NFL player that like retired early to like serve as a pastor, a minister. And that's amazing. That's not ultimate, friends. That's not what we're all going for, is that someday we all quit our jobs to serve on the mission field or to be a pastor. Oftentimes when we are called to surrender, to sell everything, what it means is, God, how do I so see you? in your glory, in your goodness, in your love, in your kingdom in a way that my love for you and my love for the things of your kingdom surpass all the other things. It doesn't mean quitting your job and leaving your family and, and whatever because that's the thing you love the most. It's about what is the order of priority? What is it? And here's the invitation today as I ask Alex and the band to come up leading the final song. You know, for me, again, I can only speak to my experience, but, you know, growing up, the, the prayer that I would have prayed after something like this would have been like, God, help me, to, help me to love you first. Help me to love you more. Help me to, to give up this. Help me to give up that. And that's not what I want you to pray. You can pray that if you want. You pray however you want. You know, that's not wrong. But here's what I would say, and here's what I would pray. Saying, God, would you show me? Would you show me why I don't love you first? Would you, sh would you show me what it is that I do love most? Would you show me that where my heart does most naturally go and, and why it is that it doesn't go to you and to what you love and what you value? Begin at a heart level. Friends, there are too many of us who grew up in church or even now who have willpowered it through to do the right thing, to be a good Christian, to do all the things, and yet at a heart level, our loves haven't changed. And we get bitter, we get resentful, we get burnt out. But God's invitation to us today would be to ask the question of, God, why? What is it that I love most? And God, why? If it isn't you, why? Would you show me and allow God to begin to transform our loves? So would you stand as we sing a final song?